At this time, we'll turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 11. Hosea, chapter 11. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them, because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, None at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, then His sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Ephraim has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn back to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, which is going to be really the theme verse for our communion season this evening and uh, God willing tomorrow morning and evening uh, we'll be meditating upon the, the significance of what is said here as it's developed then later and quoted in the Gospel of Matthew and application to our Savior. But here in verse 1 of Hosea 11, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Here we have striking words, beautiful words, 
words that serve to deepen our understanding of salvation itself. And that's the sort of thing that we need as we're preparing to come to the Lord's table tomorrow evening. Uh, What we're going to be doing tomorrow evening is we're going to be remembering the Lord, remembering His death, His suffering, His death, His burial, and His resurrection for our salvation. And it's our salvation as the believing people of God that is the focus of the prophecy of Hosea. In fact, His name means salvation. And so this prophet whose name is salvation sets forth a message of salvation to the people of God. Hosea's prophecy highlights the salvation of the Lord's chosen covenant people. Um, And in a way that's very unique because he highlights their constant unfaithfulness against God. Hosea is uh, the sort of book of the Bible that often leaves us scratching our heads. What exactly is happening here? Hosea presents the relationship between God and his people as a relationship between a husband and an unfaithful wife. We can think of the book of Song of Solomon where we see the Lord presenting his relationship to his people as uh, a loving bridegroom and We can see a beautiful relationship with that bride in the Song of Solomon. Though she's not perfect, yet she's set forth as beautiful and and, uh, spotless and and just a, a delight to her husband in so many ways. But in the book of Hosea, the church is presented very differently. Uh, The Old Covenant church, the Old Covenant people of God in Israel are presented as a faithless harlot, as an unfaithful woman who departs from her husband and commits adultery. And this is the indictment that the Lord brings against His people, both uh, the, the Israelites to the north and the tribe of Judah to the south. There's an indictment for their unfaithfulness, their spiritual harlotry, departing from the Lord to idols, to immorality, to wine and debauchery and all kinds of things. You can read the book. The Lord presents His people in that way. And He actually commands Hosea to marry a woman who is then unfaithful to Him, thereby dramatizing what's happening between God and His people in the life of Hosea. And it's a striking book and it's a convicting book, but it's also a very comforting book because the major theme is that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God, their husband, remains faithful to them day in and day out, year in and year out, such that He preserves His people and eventually sends His Messiah, who is prophesied in chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their King. It's a reference to Christ. David's been long dead in the days of Hosea. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. So there's hope. There's hope for the covenant people of God to be preserved till the coming of Christ. There's something of hope there even for the, uh, the natural branches on the olive tree, the unbelieving Jews who are cut off, that God will regraft them. There's a message of hope from so many angles in this prophecy of Hosea. But 
what we find in Hosea 11 verse 1 is that uh, the Lord here switches metaphors. He switches from the marital metaphor to a metaphor of parenting, a fatherly metaphor. God is not the bridegroom and the church the bride, but instead God is the father and Israel is his firstborn son, his heir, his beloved son, the son who, as we'll see, he redeemed out of bondage in Egypt. But here again, despite Israel's constant unfaithfulness, the Lord manifests his saving love to his people time and time again as a father to a son. And Uh, This relationship between a father and a son should not be underestimated in terms of its significance, either for the human race or within this sort of spiritual dimension. Uh, We often do think of husbands and wives when we contemplate love. And most of the songs that are written in our day for entertainment purposes about love are romantic songs about romantic relationships and best case scenario husband and wife but you get the point Uh, this relationship between a father and a son is a natural relationship it's not a covenantal relationship in other words it's not based on an agreement you take vows like at a wedding Uh, it's a natural relationship and so you can see how in some sense marriage can be a fitting illustration of god's covenant of grace with his people because there's a covenantal bond there. But when we think of God as Father, and when we think of God speaking of my Son, we need to understand that at the root of this is a natural relationship, a relationship that is more than just an agreement. It's deeper than that. It it strikes at the very being of Father and Son. And really, this is the eternal relationship between God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word, who was in the beginning with God, and who was God and is God. Uh, This relationship of Father and Son that we're going to see here manifested in terms of God's relationship to Israel really originates within the being of God Himself. uh, What we call the ontological trinity. In the essence of God, Uh, we have God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father begets the Son from all eternity. The Son is begotten of the Father from all eternity. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, again, from all eternity. These are natural relationships within the essence or being of God. And so when we find uh, the Father at Jesus' baptism declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, Or when we find Romans chapter 8, God spared not His own Son. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, We have here the essence of this natural, deep-rooted relationship between Father and Son. And God, we know, uh, created this world to reflect His glory. And in particular, He instituted the relationship between fathers and sons as a means of revealing His character and the inter-Trinitarian love relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Now, at this point, you say, how does this have anything to do 
with Israel? Or if we can look at it more broadly, how does this have anything to do with God's believing people today, the church? What's the significance? How could Israel as God's people, how could the church today as the Israel of God, the people of God, how could we ever be called my son by God the Father or by God Himself? Well, uh, first, we have to understand that election unto salvation by the Father was done in Christ. God chose to save His believing people from before the foundation of the world, not even considering them as believers, just considering them uh, as, as those who would be in need of salvation. He elected to save them in the Lord Jesus Christ who is His eternal Son. And so, God's believing people become His sons in His Son. And therefore, His Son represents them. They are what they are in the affections of God. They are what they are in the plan of God because of the One whom the Father can speak of as My Son. And therefore, they're viewed in corporate solidarity with the Son of God. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 2. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he says, God is our Father. God is our Father. Then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's saying, God who is our Father is eternally the Father of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, Father of Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. So before time began, the Father chose All of those whom He would save adopted them as it were in some sense. Not saying that there's not something unique that happens at conversion. But in terms of God's predestinating plan, uh, He ordained that they would be His sons in His Son. That's the, the manner in which the Lord speaks of Israel as His firstborn son. That's the manner in which He speaks of His people as His sons and daughters, children of the living God, because we've been adopted in Christ, the natural, essential Son of God. Now, this can be considered individually, as we've been doing here. Uh, Every true believer, every elect sinner who's brought to salvation will ultimately spend eternity in heaven with God as His sons and daughters. Okay, This is individual. Individual election in Christ. Individual saving adoption. This is true of every true Christian. And that's actually going to be our focus this evening as we consider this calling of God's Son out of Egypt. We're going to be thinking about how God has called His believing people out of Egypt. He's saved them. And He ultimately brings them into the promised land eternally. Uh, But there's also another sense in which Israel is God's son. And the Bible speaks of this frequently as well. And this will be the focus, Lord willing, of our sermon tomorrow morning. 
but it, it, it's something we need to take stock of, that when God says, Israel is my son, and I called him out of Egypt, that's not saying every Israelite was eternally elect and adopted as a child of God, is it? It's not saying that. Uh, in fact, in, in many instances, most of the visible covenant people of God in his firstborn son Israel were actually children of the devil who spent, or are currently in hell and will spend eternity there as enemies of God. Uh, so there is a sense of visible adoption, Romans 9 verse 4. These are the people uh, that Paul is praying for. He's burdened, he's sorrowful in his heart, desiring that his countrymen according to the flesh would be saved. Okay, so these are visible covenant members of Israel. Paul desires them to be saved. He says, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. So he says they're sons of God in an outward sense. We might say an ecclesiastical sense, a church sense. They're visible members of the, in this case, the old covenant community. Uh, And so as Israelites, they're part of God's firstborn son corporately. And there's that corporate adoption. The children of Israel are visibly, corporately, the the people of God, the children of God. Um, But that doesn't mean that every one of them is saved. Uh, You see this imagery, again, we'll be unpacking this tomorrow, but in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, when the prodigal returns and the father embraces him and throws a party to celebrate his repentance, we're told that the older brother in the father's house was unhappy with this and he was angry and complaining about this but when the father came to this older brother and gently confronted him and invited him into the feast to celebrate we're told Luke 15:31 the father says to him as he's pleading with him son you are always with me and all that i have is yours So in that parable, Jesus presents both of these sons as sons of God. One is an elect, repentant, believing son who enters the joy of his father. And uh, the other, up to this point, we don't know the outcome, we'll talk about that tomorrow, but up to this point in the parable, the older brother is just an outward son, just like the unbelieving Israelites many of whom came up out of Egypt, called out of Egypt, but were not uh, true, savingly adopted children of God. So understand that. But this evening, we're focusing our attention on that saving adoption and God calling His children out of bondage in Egypt through salvation in Christ. Now, uh, Christ is often referred to as Israel, by the way, So it's not surprising that we would find um, that that the Lord Jesus Christ is in view here in Hosea 11 verse 1. In other words, that that God's people Israel are called His Son because of the fact that they've been called out in and through God's Son. That's not surprising because in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 3, Even in the Old Testament, you have a prophecy of Messiah. Uh, It's indisputable that chapter 49 points to the Messiah. We could spend more time on this. But he says, verse 3, 
you are my servant. This is the servant of the Lord, like Isaiah 53. It's one of the servant songs speaking of the Messiah. You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So the Messiah is called Israel because he represents Israel. And then in Matthew 2.15, Matthew, under inspiration, quotes our text and says that when Jesus was brought back out of Egypt where he was hiding during the reign of Herod, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus back out of Egypt into the promised land and settled in Nazareth, that that fulfilled this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. So understand, uh, all roads lead through Christ here. That's how Israel can be called God's son because of its relationship either invisibly or visibly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate embodiment and fulfillment of Israel. So that's the idea here, the metaphor. God speaks of Israel, His people, as my son. Now, in particular, our text is alluding to the Exodus, uh, for which the entire book of Exodus is named. In the book of Exodus, you find God's people in the land of Egypt, They had been brought there under Joseph to save many lives because of the famine. They live in the land of Goshen, but now they've become captives in the land of Egypt because a new Pharaoh arose that did not remember Joseph, and now uh, he's threatened by their vastly multiplying population, and he's threatened, he's concerned, and so he begins to enslave them. So here they are, God's people, Exodus 4, verse 22 and 23, God calls them my firstborn son, God's heir, God's covenantal heir, joint heirs with Christ, God's firstborn son, Israel, is held captive in the land of Egypt as a house of bondage. Now, Israel is enslaved in two different ways at this point. Israel is enslaved to Egypt by way of Pharaoh, who uses his political and military power to bring them uh, under the yoke and under the whip. And he's tyrannical. You can read about this in the first chapter of the book of Exodus. He's so tyrannical that the Bible actually uses language to describe him that is reminiscent of Satan himself. And so uh, in Ezekiel 29.3, Psalm 74:14. some of these instances, you'll find Pharaoh, not the same Pharaoh, but Pharaoh as a concept, as an office. Pharaoh is referred to as a great dragon or sea monster. Uh, King James says uh, a great dragon, a leviathan. All these are terms that relate directly back to Satan, the serpent of old. And so they're enslaved to Egypt under the, the, the iron fist of Pharaoh in much the same way that every person who is outside of Christ and certainly every elect sinner before their conversion, God's looking at those that He's elected to be His children from before the foundation of the world and He sees them before their conversion and they are in bondage. They are weary and heavily burdened. And these are the people that Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. They're burdened with the guilt of sin. They're enslaved to various lusts 
And they're living in a fallen world with all kinds of reasons to be depressed and dejected. And certainly the fear of death, not the least among them. And so God's people are are akin to this in their situation. They're enslaved to Egypt by the Pharaoh, even as those who are outside of Christ are enslaved to this world and to its miserable uh, way of operation. Uh, Also, they're enslaved with Egypt. See, it's not just something that, you know, is victimizing them. You know, Pharaoh is putting them under the yoke and forcing them to make bricks to build the royal cities of the Pharaoh. And he's uh, at times even uh, murdering the Hebrew babies and making laws that they need to be thrown into the Nile. And he's victimizing them. They're enslaved to Egypt by Pharaoh. But you see, that's not the entire picture, is it? They're enslaved with Egypt. Egypt is enslaved to sin and Satan and God's people in Egypt as we see time and time again both in Egypt and after they get out of Egypt into the wilderness and after they get out of the wilderness into the promised land. They're enslaved to sin and Satan as well. Even when the Lord brings them out of Egypt, many of them left their hearts in Egypt. Or you could say Egypt is still in their hearts moving forward. We're going to talk a lot about that, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. But Israel is enslaved with Egypt to sin and to Satan. Remember when God initially raised up Moses and Moses went to uh, defend one of his brethren and in defending that brother, the Egyptian lost his life and the, the Israelites tattled on Moses and were gossiping and spreading this information and it was found out. And then Moses was trying to reconcile two brothers among the Israelites who were fighting. And when he came, they said, you know, essentially, uh, who gave you authority over us? And, and are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And he had to leave for 40 years because they were so conformed to the image and conformed to the patterns of Egypt that they would not recognize and accept God's deliverer. And we can debate Moses' actions there and the proper timing, but the point is the, the Israelites were not rejecting Moses for a good reason. They were rejecting Moses in the same way that when Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. And that's uh, made clear by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But you have Israel enslaved to sin and to Satan. And when they come out of the wilderness, they get to the Red Sea and they're backed into a corner, and they begin to whine and complain and cry out, you know, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Why were we brought out? And they're complaining and murmuring against the Lord. And then Numbers 11, you have that mixed multitude that can't stop complaining, you know, it's manna day after day, this manna. And they're just complaining nonstop against Moses and ultimately against the Lord this mixed multitude that's longing to go back into bondage in Egypt, back into that arena in which they could eat their fish and their leeks and their onions and their cucumbers because they weren't just enslaved to Egypt. They found that to be unpleasant, but they were enslaved with Egypt to the things of this world, to the pleasures and treasures of this life. Even the slight fraction they received as slaves, they loved it and they loved this world. And they rejected the Lord their God. They were enslaved in that way, which is, of course, 
a far more serious kind of slavery. Now, the Lord constantly reminds His people to remember what they were in Egypt before He brought them out with a mighty hand. Uh, And this is something that every true believer needs to be thinking about, especially as you're preparing to come to the Lord's table. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember when you were under the iron fist of this world, but not just externally as a, as a sort of victimization. You, in fact, were complicit. You willingly enslaved yourself to the things of this world. You loved the, the leeks, the onions, the cucumbers more than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you need to remember, and I need to remember, the rock from which we were hewn. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, right in this uh, second reiteration of the Ten Commandments. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Uh, My friends, this needs to be on our minds. Satan wants us to forget all that God has done for our souls. He wants us to forget that as Psalm 80 says, Lord, You took that vine from Egypt and to plant it drove nations out. You saved me from my sin and my misery and my enslavement to the world, the flesh and the devil. You brought me out and You planted me in the house of the Lord to bear fruit in season. Remember what you were. Remember and be humbled. Remember and be grateful. Remember and be comforted and encouraged for whatever you're facing now that requires the mighty right arm of the Lord to save you. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there. What a beautiful thing to think about. Titus chapter 3 says much the same thing. Uh, The Apostle Paul here summarizes the essence of the Gospel. Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving. That word means, it refers to slavery. We could say serving by way of enslavement, various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember that He plucked up that vine and transplanted you into the kingdom of God. Remember what you were. And you say, well, I'm a covenant child. I don't remember a specific moment of conversion. Well, you know, many people who were not covenant children growing up in a Christian home still don't remember a precise day and hour. And even if they do, they might actually be wrong. Okay? The fact of the matter is, you don't need to know the date that a tree was planted to know that it's alive. Uh, You could just see it bearing fruit. And you know that it was planted at a certain point, though you may not know the day or the hour. Uh, And for yourself, you may not know as a covenant child, at what point did the Lord take me from death into life? 
Uh, You see the fruit now. You have assurance now. You know He saved you. And you know the Bible has said that you were enslaved to various lusts, that you were conceived and born in sin. Uh, So, like everything else that the Bible says, just believe that and fill in the, the gaps. You may not consciously recall what that was like, but surely you know the remnant of that sin in your battle against sin. You can go to Romans 7 and relate to that. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I, what I don't want to do, I find myself falling into. And so even your battle with remaining sin after your regeneration is a testimony to what you must have been beforehand, whether you remember it or not. Uh, we, we could say it this way. Are you baptized? Covenant children from Presbyterian churches, are you baptized? You don't remember that either, but you don't question that. Okay. So if there's fruit that you're a believer you know at a certain point you passed from death to life, from being a slave to being a child of God. And that's something to remember, especially what you were beforehand. Now, here in our passage, we see that despite Israel's sin, God loved His Son. Chapter 11 of Hosea outlines numerous offenses that the Israelites perpetrated against God. They were ungrateful for all these good things that God did. And time and time again, you can read through it, and we'll do this some of this, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow. But uh, they're rebellious against God. They're disobedient to God. Uh, they're, They're basically turning their backs upon God. Uh, Verse 7, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. So you have Israel in deep, dark sin, and yet God loves His Son. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved Him. Now this is important for us, because Israel as a child here is Israel in the land of Egypt. Israel in bondage. In terms of this redemptive illustration that we're using here, which I think is biblical, that the exodus represents salvation from sin. We can see this as a love that God has for unconverted elect sinners. Those that He's chosen before the foundation of the world, they have not yet come to faith. They've not yet come to repentance. They've not yet come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, They're still in Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Uh, God's elect, he loves. Now, he doesn't love them in exactly the same way as after their conversion, because that opens a whole new arena for the Lord to shower them with the sort of love where he actually sees his handiwork in them and delights over them and rejoices over them with singing. So, so there are nuances to this. But the saving long, love of God... Uh, comes first, and then comes the redemption. Uh, Then comes regeneration, faith, repentance. When Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was rebellious, conformed to the pattern of the world in Egypt, when Israel was rejecting Moses and telling the, the guards and in Pharaoh's army about what he did to the Egyptian and getting him in trouble, whatever it is, 
when they were stabbing him in the back, the Lord loved Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Why did God love Israel in its sin, in its rebellion? Because Israel was his son. And why was Israel his son? Not because they earned it, not because they uh, won some sort of uh, contest to become. No, it's because God from before the foundation of the world chose them in his eternal son. That's the only reason. Not many wise, not many noble, not many strong. The Lord chooses the foolish and the sinful things of this world uh, to shame all else. And we see this reflected in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, this saving love of God for Israel as His people, and we can say for every one of His elect. Exodus 3, verse 9, He appears to Moses at the burning bush. Listen to what He says. I'll, I'll start in verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now they deserve those sorrows. Did you ever think about that? God hears their cry, but probably 90 plus percent of these people are unconverted. Certainly the ones that went out with Moses were almost all unconverted. So these are not godly people. Uh, These are people who descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the chosen covenant people of God that He loves for the sake of His Son, who is the, the, the embodiment of Israel. But God is taking pity on sinners who are experiencing misery. In fact, they deserve far worse. You go to verse 9, Therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. The Lord looked down from heaven, dear believer, and saw you in your sin, saw you in a pool of blood, saw you in your wickedness, your conniving iniquity, and He loved you. He saw you in the misery that you were experiencing because of your own stupidity, and He loved you. He loved you. He loved Israel as a child. We see this reflected in Romans chapter 5. Verse 8, or verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. You see this, people give their life for a family member. They give their life for somebody else. Uh, You know, a marine gives his life to save Uh, his band of brothers. But uh, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us as children of disobedience. When you were a child of disobedience, He says, I loved you. I brought you out. I called you out of Egypt. I sent My Son to save you from sin while you were yet a sinner. You see this reflected in the parable of the prodigal son, don't you? You see this in that parable where the prodigal comes to his senses and he returns smelling like 
pig manure to the father's house and the father sees him a long way off and he runs to him because he loves him. He loves him. He doesn't love him after he hears this sound of repentance from coming forth from his voice. He runs to him and falls on him and kisses him and embraces him before he's really even had a chance to hear the full story. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Is this not a pattern for fatherhood? Is this not the way that godly fathers relate to their children and how all fathers ought to relate to their children? When, when your child, when your son or daughter was a child, fathers, did you love them? Do you have children now? Do you reflect the love of your heavenly Father by loving them simply because they're your children, not because they had to earn it, but because God gave them to you? When your son or daughter was a child, did you love them? Do you love them? This reflects the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ and the heart of God the Father. In fact, we're told that when Christ came in the fullness of time, that one of the things that would, would take place when, when John the Baptist prepared the way and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be a change of heart of fathers toward children and children toward fathers. In fact, the very last verse in the entire Old Testament He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And I think there's far more there than just parenting, for sure, because when it's quoted in the New Testament, it says that the children are turned to the wisdom of the just. So perhaps it's not just to their immediate fathers, but to their forefathers, and there's a revival of true religion from generations past but it certainly does include parenting and it does include fatherhood that when the Holy Spirit is transforming hearts and lives when the Holy Spirit through the word of God is saving people and sanctifying them in the truth that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and and what hypocrisy it would be for me or for you or for anyone here as a father or a mother uh, or a grandparent. Uh, we can apply this in so many ways, but how hypocritical would it be to, to take comfort from a text like this that God as my father loved me as a child and called me out of Egypt and we get into the Sabbath day and we consider the various aspects of this teaching and we come to the Lord's table tomorrow evening and we're reveling, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, but there's not an ounce of love in our hearts for the children God has given us. Or if there's an ounce, there's nowhere near as much as there should be, given how much our Father in heaven has loved us how our hearts as fathers ought to be turned to our children, to their physical well-being, to their emotional well-being, to the things that are important to them. Here we find God calling His Son. He's communicating with His Son. Fatherhood involves communication, talking to your children, talking to your son, to your daughter, listening to them, 
having a relationship with them, hearing and knowing as God in Exodus 3, their miserable condition. If, if they're feeling pain or suffering, seeing it, knowing it, coming to deal with it and coming alongside them to, to help call them out of that bad situation and help solve the problems and, and seek to lead them first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ and to their Heavenly Father. Uh, do you love your children enough to disciple them, to pray with them and for them, and to teach them the will of God, to call out to them, to speak to them, to instruct them in the things of God? God loved His Son. Do you love your children? Now, this is something that we need to get right if we don't have it right before we ever have any business coming to the table of our Heavenly Father tomorrow evening. We're told out of love God then called His Son. And it's significant that it uses the word call because it's a reference to the, the means that God used to bring His people out of bondage in Egypt and through the wilderness and, and to the promised land. He used primarily His Word. He called them. Uh, he didn't send some muscle-bound Samson to deliver them from Egypt and beat up Pharaoh. He sent preachers. He sent Moses. And when Moses was a bit skittish, he sent Aaron to be the mouthpiece of Moses, right? Uh, Moses is the mouthpiece of God, and Aaron is the mouthpiece of Moses. But notice, it's the Word of God that he sent to his people. And you go to Exodus 3, and you can see this emphasis that God is sending Moses. He's saying, here's what I want you to say to them. Say this. Tell them that. Tell them it's Jehovah. I am that I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them about my concern, my compassion. Tell them about my love. Tell them about my power and strength. Remind them of my plan that I'm going to bring them out with a strong hand. He sent them His Word. He called them out of Egypt. And we see from the very opening chapters of the Bible, this is how God calls sinners out of bondage to sin. Right from the very outset. Genesis 3 verse 9. Adam and Eve sinned. They hid from the presence of God in the, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And God calls to him, confronts him, and, and eventually uh, shows him his sin, reveals in verse 15 the promise of a Savior to come. And by the end of the chapter, Adam and Eve are no longer naked. They're no longer foolishly trying to clothe themselves in fig leaves, but they are clothed, as it were, in the blood-bought righteousness of Christ, the skins of the animal that God had slain. That's how God called Adam and Eve out of bondage to sin. That's how He called you, dear believer. That's how He called me out of bondage to sin. His Word. His Word. And when God called Israel out of bondage in Egypt, uh, we're told that He called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They had a high calling. But do you realize that that same language is used of every believer in the New Testament church today? 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You'll recall one of the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt was a plague of darkness. Darkness that could be felt in all the land of Egypt. But my friends, God has called every believer in Jesus Christ. He called you out of that darkness into His marvelous light and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Out of Egypt, I called my Son. And we're told that that calling, we, we speak of this in theological terms as an effectual calling. God calls with, with might and strength. He's not just calling in the sense that many are called and few are chosen. There's an outward call of the gospel that goes indiscriminately to all hearers of the gospel. But here we're speaking of the effectual calling, the powerful, effective calling of the Holy Spirit, which refers to the few that are chosen, not to the many that are called. Uh, when God calls everyone to repent and believe, there are some that His Holy Spirit draws to salvation. And John 6 tells us that uh, everyone who believes on Christ must be first drawn by the Father. The Father drew Israel with gentle cords. We see that verse 4, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. Dear believer, God called you, and He called you gently. Uh, you could say, well, it didn't seem gentle. I had the, this uh, overwhelming conviction of sin, but you see, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to the hell that our sins deserve. Okay, But in many cases in particular, uh, you know, you do have the Philippian jailer type conversion where, you know, there's an earthquake and then you're about to kill yourself and you're converted. Okay, fair enough. I'm not going to impose the verse on, on that situation. Okay, but there are many of us where we find a, a, a unique um, attachment to verse 4 in the way that the Lord called us. For some, he used that still small voice. I drew them with gentle cords, uh, with bands of love. We were captivated. We speak of irresistible grace. And when we speak of irresistible grace, there are some uh, fool, foolish people, foolish Calvinistic people, that speak of irresistible grace in such a way that it almost comes across as a sort of spiritual rape. And that term has been used. And that is a term that is so foreign to the imagery of biblical salvation. Irresistible grace is the Holy Spirit showing us the beauty and glory of Christ and wooing us to be a willing people in the day of His power. Yes, it is irresistible. Yes, God powerfully determines our wills, as our standards say. But it is a willing people in the day of His power. We see Him. We love Him. We're drawn to, get to Him. He is altogether lovely. We choose Him. We desire Him. We run to Him. We flee to Him. Uh, we're drawn with bands, not of coercion, but of love. And, and it has the same effect as coercion. It's just as powerful and mighty and irresistible, but it's absolutely like night and day difference. 
It, it's, a, it's a loving uh, call that draws us with gentle cords. And God called His Son, specifically here, out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my Son. And not just outwardly. He didn't just call Him out of Egypt outwardly. Uh, because all of God's people among the Israelites actually came out of Egypt. They all came. And in that sense, corporately, it was an effectual call. But individually, as we said, 1 Corinthians 10 is very clear that with most of them, God was not well pleased and they died in the wilderness. And when they came to enter the promised land, you'll recall only two out of over 604,000 Non-Levite Israelites, uh, only two were willing to enter, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else was unbelieving and did not enter because of their unbelief. Uh, But uh, here, he he called his people, thinking of those elect sinners among them, and thinking of ourselves as believers, out of Egypt. He called them out inwardly. And this was specifically... Uh, the way in which he called them. He made it clear at that time that they were not simply to come out physically, but also spiritually. Ezekiel 20, verse 6. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So at that time, through Moses, he spoke to them. He urged them. He called them. And I think that's probably the emphasis of verse 2. They, Moses and Aaron, on the Lord's behalf, also called them out of Egypt and called them to abandon the lifestyle and the idolatry of Egypt. So he called them out. And for the elect among them, he called them out effectually, both physically, outwardly, and spiritually, and inwardly. He called them out of Egypt. And we see an example of this in Moses himself, whose heart was called out of Egypt 40 years before. But yet it was his true exodus, spiritual exodus from Egypt. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, possibly around 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. When given the opportunity, Moses, who we're told in the book of Acts, was mighty in deed and in word. Uh, Secular historians in the ancient world speculate that he was a mighty general who won various victories. We don't know, but he seemed to have a clear path to great wealth and power and notoriety in the land of Egypt. And he could have claimed sonship of Pharaoh himself by way of Pharaoh's daughter. The son of Pharaoh's daughter perhaps even an heir to the throne. But Moses was called out of Egypt to identify not as a son of Pharaoh, but as a son of God. And God called His son Moses out of Egypt 
by giving him a heart that treasured spiritual things, treasured the Lord Himself as His uh, shield and His exceeding great reward. And He would rather suffer affliction with God's firstborn son Israel than to enjoy the passing pleasures of a sinful lifestyle as a child of Pharaoh. It says He esteemed the reproach of Christ. So in other words, He looked at uh, all those aspects of the Christian life that are least attractive. Right? Uh, of all the aspects of the Christian life, there are many things that are enjoyable, but being reproached for the sake of Christ in itself is not enjoyable. It's painful. You can sing numerous psalms in the book of Psalms about the pain and suffering of being reproached with the people of God for the sake of Christ. But Moses looked at the least appetizing aspects of the Christian life, and, and his heart was so called out of Egypt that he esteemed these things greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. Why? Because he looked to his reward. Uh, these things were momentary light afflictions compared to the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The city that has foundations. As he longed for the literal outward Canaan, he was longing all the more for the heavenly Canaan. And so verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt. Now, this is long before the exodus and it was even before he defended that Hebrew and ended up having to flee to Midian. Before all of that, Moses experienced a spiritual exodus. He forsook Egypt by faith. And my friends, true faith always forsakes Egypt. True faith always esteems the, you know, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the luxurious tents of the wicked. Even the least desirable parts of the Christian life desires them more than the fleeting pleasures that are but a, a, a pretext, a, a preface to eternal destruction. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's the effectual call out of Egypt for every true child of God. And he called them out hastily. Right? During the Exodus, he said, get out. You need to get out tonight. You need to get out tonight and you need to not even spend time baking your bread so that it rises. There should be no leaven in your households. We don't have time for that. You need to forsake, though it may make the bread taste better, though it may involve greater earthly, physical enjoyment for your taste buds, you need to flee out of Egypt. You need to prioritize seeking me and following my calling more than anything else. It's not that leaven is evil, but it represents something that in that situation was unnecessary and was a hindrance and a stumbling block and they would have been waiting for the bread to rise, and they would have missed their opportunity. Out of Egypt I called my son. Get out of Egypt. Hasten and flee into the wilderness. And despite Israel's backsliding over the years, God never stopped loving His Son. And perhaps that's the, the most emphatic point of chapter 11. Uh, again, you go through here, uh, 
for the sake of time, verse 7 just again makes this point. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Uh, They backslide. Uh, Like sheep, they go astray. And the Lord does not stop loving them. He never leaves them, nor forsakes them. And this is true corporately of Israel. He never finally or fully destroyed the covenant people of God, but He preserved a remnant. You see that in verse 11 at the end there, verse 12, that Judah's still walking with God. Uh, There's a remnant, and God always preserves His church throughout the ages. So corporately, He never abandons the church at large. But isn't this so precious to every believer individually? That though we sin... Though we backslide, we're going to look at a lot of these things tomorrow. Though we sin, though we backslide, though we profess great things, we call to the Most High, but we don't exalt the Most High. Verse 7, the Lord never finally or fully abandons us. He never stops loving us. Verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How, How my heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. God is not a God who is moved or shaken. God is immovable. He has neither parts nor passions. We call that impassibility. But my friends, this is not merely a figure of speech. What this is telling us is that, yes, in the same way that a human father longs for his child, especially a child that's gone astray, In the same sense that a human being churns in his heart with sympathy for someone he loves, someone he desires to be restored, someone he desires to be rescued and delivered, someone that has wronged him, but he's stirred up with, not with hatred and vengeance, but with love and with compassion, that that stirring up to love and compassion that we experience as humans and that we see in others that, that this reflects something that in God is far better than anything we could be stirred up to. right? This is the God whose character is the basis for the whole concept of compassion and love. So when we say God is not moved and His heart doesn't churn, what we're saying is He has this compassion infinitely, eternally, all the time. He doesn't have to be stirred up to compassion. He doesn't have to be stirred up to sympathy. His heart doesn't have to churn within Him to produce this love. He is this love all the time, infinitely, without intermission, all the time for all of His believing people, for all of His children, even despite our sin, even His anger at our sin as a a fatherly anger, a fatherly chastisement. My dear friend, God is angry with your sin in love. He's angry because sin is destroying you. Sin is taking your joy. Sin is, sin is wreaking havoc on your life and on the church. And He's angered by that. He's not angered primarily because of His own glory because that has been satisfied through the blood of Christ. It's not as though God is angered because of some urge to inflict justice and wrath upon you, dear believer. Not at all. That has been satisfied through Christ. God is always concerned for His glory, but 
the sense in which he's concerned for his glory when he's angry at your sin is that he's called you as his child. He's saved you. He's put Christ's name upon you. And he desires that just as he wanted to show the Egyptians his saving power and he wouldn't let Israel uh, ultimately fall away, he, he, he is unrelenting in bringing about our sanctification, urging us, rebuking us, warning us, stirring us up to honor Him. But it's all out of love from beginning to end. There's not an ounce of judicial wrath and hatred in God against any believer in Jesus Christ. God loves His people and He never stops loving us. And Psalm 125 gives us a comforting promise that in the same way that God will never abandon His church as a whole, that same confidence belongs to every believer. Psalm 125, verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. If you're backsliding, you need to hear this. Because this is the gentle cord of love that draws you back. And I know sometimes God lights a fire under us and He uses many different ways to rattle our cage. But this is a way to draw you back. To realize that if you simply trust in the Lord, trust in Him to restore you, trust in Him to give you the grace, trust in Him to draw you closer. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion that cannot be moved. Your adoption as a child of God cannot be changed. Your salvation is steadfast and immovable, and though you're backsliding before long, you will be abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. You will abide forever. And it's that comfort, it's that assurance that stirs us up oftentimes out of our backsliding. Now, in closing, I simply want to give you a question to ask yourself. Am I God's beloved child? This, at the end of the day, is the most important question because we're told that when Israel was a child, I loved him. And and out of Egypt, I called my son. We're told that all who are children of God in God's Son, Jesus Christ, that he loved them from the beginning He'll love them to the end and He's redeemed them decisively out of Egypt. What other comfort could possibly reassure our souls tonight or tomorrow? We need to know. We need to have assurance whether we are or whether we're not God's beloved children and whether or not this text applies to us. And so I would simply ask a few questions. First, Have you received Christ? Have you received Christ? Do you know who Christ is? And have you accepted Him and acknowledged who He is and your willing subjection and full trust in Him as a prophet such that you believe everything in the Bible and you desire Him to help you obey every command in the Bible and believe every doctrine in the Bible? Is He your prophet? Is He your priest? Is it the case that when you feel guilty, you're not trying to earn your favor with God by doing something to offset the sin you've committed, but you're looking to the finished work, the shed blood of Jesus Christ as your priest, and you're coming to God through Him as your 
mediator, as your intercessor, as your great high priest? Is he your king? Such that you're not like the people who say, Lord, Lord, but don't give a rip about what he says, but you seriously read the Bible to know what he says, and by God's grace you obey it. Is he the one that you promise to love and obey as your bridegroom? as your prophet, as your priest, as your king? Is he your portion? Is he your treasure? Is he your riches? Is he your priority? And do you desire even the reproach of Christ more than the pleasures of this world? Have you received him as your Savior and Lord? Secondly, is the church your mother? Uh, If God is your father, then unless there's some extraordinary circumstance, the church is going to be your mother, right? You're going to gather with the saints. You're going to, if you've passed from death to life, John says, you'll love the brethren. Uh, Galatians 4.26 says the church is, is described there as Jerusalem above, which is our mother. Those who have been saved by Christ as fellow children of God will gravitate to the family of God. They'll want to be in their Father's house as a house of prayer. They'll want to be within the body of Christ who saved them. They'll want to be part of the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within them. They'll say with the psalmist, let my right hand forget its strength if I forget Jerusalem. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't keep Zion above my chief joy. Do you love the church? Do you love the brethren? And in particular, do you love your children? Has God conformed you to Himself, thereby giving it evidence of your saving grace, by giving you a heart of love for those in your immediate family, but especially parents, for your children? Uh, Can you say with John, applying this spiritual statement to your family in, in an appropriate way, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Is that really the case? Is that the greatest joy, the greatest passion, the greatest effort and agenda in your life as a parent to know that your children are walking in the truth? If it's not, repent. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Ask Him to restore within you that heart of a father or mother for their children and ask Him to give you a fresh renewal of soul. The Good Shepherd restores our soul. Uh, but, but ask yourselves these questions because ultimately if your response is not either yes or by the grace of God, yes, Lord, help me, I believe, help my unbelief. It's, if it's not something in that ballpark, then this verse does not apply to you. And the same comfort that draws the believer in will be like a brick wall to keep you out because you're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. So you need to repent and you need to be drawn and you need to hear and answer that call and you need to come back tomorrow morning so that I can address that particular problem. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the comfort of knowing that you are our Father and that you've given us the right to be called the children of God. That though Jesus came to his own as Moses of old did and 
His own received Him not, but yet to those who received Him, who believe on His name, you have given the privilege and the right to be called the sons of God. Oh, that we would behold what manner of love you've given unto us and that we would revel in that privilege here this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.